Jacob, I have a question. And I'm stuck between two questions. I'll just pick one. We have a lot of students that have trouble reading, I would imagine. How do you make reading, the magic of reading, come down to your students? How do you bring the wonders to your students, as Dr. Carroll would say? Teachers, good teachers bring the wonders down so they can understand it. How do you do that when your kids are struggling? You know, I love this idea of bringing something down. I feel like there's something mythic about it, right? I mean, the mm-hmm. obvious implications. I mean, Moses, right? <laughs> like there, <laughs> there's there's the. I mean, this is this is an archetype in stories, right? Someone bringing down divine knowledge, right? It goes back to Prometheus and stuff. I reference. I even say the the the. The writing workshop is Promethean in a way because that it brings in it brings the the knowledge of the gods, aka the writers, the troubled writers that no one understands, to the classroom. Right? I think of Donald Graves when he said uh, Donald Graves when he was talking about uh, Donald Murray when because Donald Murray taught like older people, right? He taught college and taught workshop, and Donald Graves, I believe, has a quote somewhere on the lines was that was the watching Donald Murray teach was the first time where he watched a writer kind of write in front of people. It was like the first, like, aha, it's like, why don't we do this more? Right? Like, why don't writers Ah. show people what real writing is? Like, what is the process? If we just, we can talk about writing all we want, but what do writers do? How do they think through stuff? And that was kind of like, you know, as, as far as I'm concerned, one of the origins of that whole process, but all of that to say to reading, um, there was a moment, and I for people that have followed me for any amount of time probably know this story a little bit, but it was when I was reading the book Whisper for the very first time. I remember I was a young teacher, still am a young teacher, but I was a younger teacher, didn't know what I was doing, and I had get I was given this book, and I was like, book Whisper, it's kind of a... Yeah, I was like, all right, it's kind of a cheesy name, and I was like, all right, I'll read the book. And then so I opened it up, and... I swear I sat up and I just, every page was like, yes, this is what reading should be. And she, you know, Donalyn talked about how at the beginning of the year, she would bring her kids to the library. She wouldn't stand up at the classroom and say all of these rules and all of these don'ts and all of these restrictions on kids. Rather, you know, she might have a little bit of that and then go to the library and they would basically have like a book frenzy, I believe is the quote she says. Um, And they would just go and she would just start handing books and let them explore and then just modeling this like infectious obsession with books. And you have to have books in your library to do that, right? You can't do that. I mean, you can go to the library, but the, as you know, the, the libraries, it's a different vibe. It's not the classroom. It's not as safe. Libraries are amazing. It's just different, right? That classroom library is special. It's unique. It is connected to students. Donald and Miller and Colby Sharp write about in uh, their book together about how book access is and having it. But clo- the closer to your fingertips books are, the more likely you are to have a, a, a literature enriched life um, and a reading life. And so, uh, having that library and is something I was like, okay, well, I don't have a library. And I was like, so that was like check one. And then check two is I was like, but I want one because I want this. I want this experience of students being excited just to be around books and to touch books and to look at books. And I want to be that teacher who just gets to stand there and hand things out and book talk them. Right. And, uh, in that vision though, what is happening is she is, uh, demystifying the process of book selecting. She is uh, removing barriers to books because you and I have talked about this too. Maybe not on the podcast, definitely in private, um, where books like learning how to select books is a unique form of knowledge, correct? Because mm-hmm. as, as well-read people, we can walk into any, we can look at any bookshelf. Doesn't matter if it's at Barnes and Noble, half price books, the public library, a school library, doesn't matter if they're labeled correctly or not. We can look at those spines and know roughly the genres we're looking at. We can know roughly the stuff that we'll be interested in because we've touched and seen and read so many books. We have a language that has been developed through 
years and years of corporate America selling books, right? Like that is what it is. But we forget that a lot of students don't have that language. They don't have enough book access to really know um, what that is, right? I'll have kids like, and you'll see this, they'll be like, well, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I want something realistic. And then they're just like looking in the fantasy section, regardless of all of the signs that say fantasy and these thick books that are very fantasy looking. Um, they just don't even register that they're in, they're not even looking where they kind of want to. And so I think when it comes to bringing that magic there, I think a lot of it comes down to just removing barriers. We had this conversation, uh, Friday after school where we were talking about mm-hmm. how as a literacy coach, one of the first things I talked about with our team was classroom libraries and labeling and all this other stuff. It was like literally the first words that came out of my mouth was classroom libraries. And uh, the reason is, is because that is such a great way. If, if kids walk into a classroom and books are in there, that's great. If they walk in there and books are organized, that's better. If they walk in there and books are organized by genre and they can reference those genres and they are clear to where kids can access them and start learning the language of books, that's the holy grail of kids starting to learn this knowledge. And that's what I'm talking about, removing that barrier. So when it comes to bringing the magic of reading down, it comes down to what are the barriers I can take away from? How do I get kids access to this where it's not stressful? It's something they could do naturally. It's something that is low pressure, right? Even I know uh, teachers, sometimes they have book sign outs that they do, right? Whether it's on a piece of paper, I've seen teachers like they'll take a picture of like a the the kid like holding the book or whatever, or they'll there's like digital apps that people can use and all that's fine. If that works for you, that's awesome. For me, it's one more barrier to entry, right? It's one more barrier keeping them because the kid that is self-conscious about grabbing a book, or maybe they've lost books in the past and their parents have yelled at them for losing books because the parent the library calls them or something, it becomes another barrier. So I want to remove all of those. That's step one. And step two is really, really just trusting, trusting the process and modeling what it's like to be a reader in the classroom and, and talking with them. And when kids get tired of books, I never go, Oh, you know, you need to give it 20 pages. I say, Nope, no one has time for bad books. Perfect. Let's put it back. Boop. Right. Because if they're not reading, they're not reading it for a reason, whether it's too complicated, they're not interested in it. Um, they're not feeling it that day. That's fine. We can, there's a million other books out there. We can keep going there. I'm never going to run out of books, right? I can buy more. We can check out more. There's a, there's literally too many books on the planet. To, to read. And so I, I trust that process. And once kids get comfortable with that, sometimes it takes a day, sometimes it takes a week, sometimes it takes half a year, sometimes it takes two years. It is what once they're comfortable with that, I, they start opening up and they start trying books. And then eventually, odds are they're going to find one that they connect to. And then once they connect with one, they're going to be on the lookout for another one. And then we have created readers. Well, I agree with that. I have one one student that ha- I had one book. I don't have the whole series. And she has asked everybody. I can't remember the name of that series all of a sudden. But Twilight. anyway, it's not. No. It's something. <laughs> something. I have a student well, looking for Eclipse because none of us have the third book in Twilight. Okay. It's not that one. I'll have to. You know what? I'll just have to figure it out. I'll ask her again and I'll bring it so that everybody knows uh, for the next one. But anyway, she's like, you don't have the rest of this book and it's like awesome and I have to have it. And so we went down to our librarian and she goes, do you have this book? She goes, no, <laughs> so we're going to have to get this book, this series. But anyway, so yeah. So, so, but the mere fact that even that one was available, she's now got this desire to finish the series because that book is, you know, so our, my job is to see if we can get it to her and um, I have to re-ask her. I need to write it down. This just happened recently. So, but anyway, uh, so with that, your answer there, Mr. Chastain, that opens us up to a craft and draft. <laughs> so you want to so welcome you everybody. Could, you could see the rail, but you weren't sure how to jump I on. There. I You're was like, oh, it's it. right there. But yes, welcome I everyone to Craft the Draft. That's Pamela Chubb, Jacob Chastain. We're two English teachers down here in the state of Texas. Talk about reading and writing workshop and everything in between. Just about we come here every week 
have a conversation, sometimes based on your questions, sometimes uh, simply to talk about what we're going to talk about today. But before I tell you what we're going to talk about today, I want to tell you that this episode and this podcast is sponsored by you, the listeners. You keep this alive, and we have several of you that we want to thank today. We have Rebecca, Sarah, Amy, Mark, Leah, Brandy, and Alicia. We're up to seven strong. Remember, Yay. once we hit 10 Patreon supporters, we're going to start doing regular PD. But with that said, we're about to drop some extra stuff anyway because – uh, the the early adopters of the Patreon, the people that are supporting the show already and have been for a few weeks now, or a few months rather, uh, we're going to do some extra stuff for all of y'all that we just mentioned. Um, so if you want to be a part of that, listeners, and you haven't joined the Patreon, go do that. We have two tiers that you can join with the listener and the listener plus. Listener gets you bonus episodes and bonus content. Listener plus gets you bonus videos and future PD videos that we're going to be dropping very soon to celebrate just having supporters and really enjoying some stuff. And I imagine we'll be doing some stuff this summer coming up as well, because Pam and I do not do well. Now we're busy in the summer, but we still got time to do some stuff. So I imagine right. uh, we'll make some stuff happen. Plus it's always fun to, to try new things and, uh, and, and, and put out some wonderful content for you. So anyway, thank you for supporting us. If you want to support us, you can do that over there on Patreon. You can also subscribe to the podcast. You don't miss anything that really does help And leaving a review helps as well. But the topic of the show today, Miss Ochoa, we're talking about reading today, but really we're talking about how to build background knowledge. And now this is going to also encompass uh, cross-text use and multi-text use and Mm-hmm. pulling in stuff and cross-text analysis. This is kind of our what we've been doing for the past several weeks. It's what we'll probably be doing leading up to our state test. One, it's a really difficult skill to have, but it's also something that we try to focus on regularly. We always, we've talked about our multi-genre stuff that we've done before. We've answered questions about multi-genre writing and reading. Um, but today we're really going to dive in and see how all of this connects and how we're doing it in our actual classrooms. And maybe some of that uh, might help some of you. So stick around, ladies and gentlemen. This is Craft and Draft. All righty, Miss Ochoa. Now, before we jump to that, we have a follow-up question um, to our last episode, believe it or not. All righty. Yeah. So Alicia jumped in. So last week, just a recap for people, if they didn't listen or they skipped an episode, God forbid they skipped an episode. (laughs) So last week we uh, answered Sarah's question. We were talking about hitting different genres in writing and merging all of them together. Um, And then publishing ultimately was kind of the goal. But Alicia chimed in over there on the pi- or on the Patreon, just like you can if you are a supporter. Uh, but she said she was asking if do we expose our students to articles that they glue into their notebooks, or do you still tie in poetry for informational text? So she was asking specifically, like in terms of like informational. So if we're doing an article, do we glue those in uh, like we would a poem or something shorter? Um, I answered it in Patreon, but I figured other people might That's have that it. question for people. If people don't know, uh, one of the things that I specifically love to do, and I know you do that every once in a while, or maybe you do it more often, I'm not 100% certain, but our I love having students, I shrink whatever reading down and we glue it right into the mini lesson, and that way it lives in there always. They don't turn this in. It's not a paper that gets turned in that I inevitably throw away or forget about. It's not something that they lose because it gets glued into their journal and it never leaves. But yes, even articles we take in. Uh, I shrink them down. If the article is especially long, I will uh, we'll use two page spread for those. Um, yeah, and so I do that as well. Um, sometimes I reformat it to make it fit on a page just for me. Um, I do that quite often. I'll take something and kind of reformat it to make it work. But yeah, I, I glue them in, make sure they work. Uh, and it, what I really love to do is often if we're doing a poetry and informational or informational and something else. Then I put those side by side in the journals. Now we have cross-text analysis within the mini lesson, and we can draw those connections back and forth. But anyway, do you glue uh, nonfiction stuff into the journals as well? Well, I'm probably not as consistent as you are, but there are, uh, I do have them in there, yes. And we do go back and look at them. Uh, Just the other day, though, I didn't have, uh, it was a small poem, and we're also reading a novel. So what I had them do is actually 
write the poem. It's, it was about four stanzas of two-line couplets, so it wasn't very long at all. So as I talked about the poem, we read it, and then they talked about it, and then they recorded the stanzas as we talked about it, and they wrote notes. So I've done that, but uh, also when it is more than one page uh, on one of those longer articles, I have envelopes, and so the students will uh, glue envelopes in there, and then in their uh, on the right side, and then they might put their actual like if it's like three pages where it's really hard to fit it in, then we'll fold it and we'll put it in the envelope. So, and then we'll pull it out to look at it. So I've done that as well. So I kind of do a conglomeration. I'm a conglomeration teacher. I decided. That's the thing. It's now at this moment. Well, when people mess with this stuff and start using their own craft and draft, we know several of you do. Y'all sent some pictures. Mm-hmm. Y'all shared some things, which has been so awesome to see uh, craft and, craft books and draft books out there in the wild. Um, by the way, if you have those, send them to us. We would love to check them out, see what you're doing, all that expert stuff going down. But yeah, just mix it up. Figure out what works for you. If you are teaching kids where gluing stuff in is a nuisance, uh, don't do it as much. If, if shrinking it down isn't always feasible then there's other ways to do that um there's all like i've taken bigger stuff and folded it and glued like one half of it down so it just kind of opens up so it's a bit more interactive you talked about the envelopes there's a bunch of ways to manipulate this The, the general idea is what's most important which is that if you flip to a mini lesson either for a reteach or tutorials, or to check up on student work to make sure that they're following around along in their mini lessons or to if you're trying to track where um comprehension was breaking down, Mm -hmm. then that's what it's for is to be able to have that access rather than like, Oh my God, I don't have a copy. Now you have to go make a copy and bring it back to the student. Now you've wasted all this time and really for five seconds of a reteach, you know what I mean? And it's just, that's the, that's what we're trying to avoid. And that's what that just little Mm -hmm. tweak does. So what knowing the the greater purpose, maybe that uh, can help some people. Well, and uh, especially at the beginning in the first semester, I was really uh, we did that quite often. Like I did do the 75. As a matter of fact, I needed, I was copying something for somebody and it came out as 75 and they were like, I can't, I mean, this is not what I wanted. I was like, ah, oh, I gotta go back and change it. So yeah, mine is automatically on the 75 uh, uh, setting so that when I print things off of there, they're at a 75. So I do it enough that, that that's the situation. But You're talking about a 75% size. Yeah. Seven, yeah for people size. that are listening. Uh, that's right. Y'all need more clarity. Okay. <laughs> this, this is why revision is important. And I'm glad you are there and we all need editors. Thank you so much. We all do need editors. <laughs> we do, but I need one bad. <laughs> I love my editors. They're very helpful people. But in any case, all right, so that to piggyback off of all of that, cross-text, building background knowledge, and this is something that is a part of the the debate in education, believe it or not, talking about something that people debate on this podcast. Um, there, There's a debate around how, like some of the, the more classical-focused educators, right? So the more traditional they they value the knowledge that we get from literature, right? The 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 they these are the people that love the canon. These are the people that defend the canon. These are the people that generally do whole group novels a lot. Not bashing any of that. We've defended this several times on the show. Um, even though we generally lean the other way, we believe in many practices, and all of these things can marry together. But that that's who they are, right? They they have this, but their main argument, that core group over there, that would probably agree with some of that. They really believe in this like core knowledge that kids should get from school, right? That every kid should understand like the touchstones, right? You can't graduate high school and not have Shakespeare touchstones, right? And not understand that his stories and plot arcs and tropes and language literally permeates all of Western entertainment, right? Um, it, it's such a core tenet. The, referencing these great pieces of literature. They believe that we we have to understand these. We can't have cultural amnesia. We have to be able to have this knowledge uh, to a degree. Now, on the, on the far other side is people who are essentially like, why, right? Like the, the canon's good, but new books are published all the time. Uh, 
things are evolving. The, if we constantly just rehash the same old stuff over and over again, we're never really getting anywhere. Um, I have definitely made those arguments before. So if it sounds like I'm being, uh, dismissive of that argument. I'm not, you can I, <laughs> literally hundreds of hours of me talking about moving in that direction on the podcast. And now I've kind of vacillated back and forth. And honestly, it just depends on my mood, depends on what I'm saying. But the, in any case, it's this, the, at the core of this is the argument of how much background knowledge do students need? Do they need to understand uh, references and stuff? Do they need to understand that a book they're reading is referencing Dante's Inferno, that it's referencing Great Expectations, that it's referencing War and Peace, that it's, you know, that it's referencing any of these things. That's even referencing, uh, I mean, because if we're talking about that, I mean, think about all of the biblical references that just go right past young people, right, that are just in literature. Think about the, the biblical references that authors write that don't realize that they're writing biblical references, right? Like, I remember one of my... uh in one of the Game of Thrones book, he says, out of the mouth of babes. And it bothered my friend so much, who is a very religious person. He was like, this would not exist in this world. That is a Bible verse. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, he was like, it, that phrase wouldn't exist in this. And I was like, it just got me, stuff like that just gets me thinking. I'm like, well, does it matter? Like, does it matter that so many people don't get these references? I pitched that question to you. Well, I think it does matter that they don't get them. Well, let's just put it this way. If they don't understand the literary allusions, if you will, or the text-to-text connections or uh, this or that, then they're missing out on the deeper meaning that that author is trying to convey. Because just like a, a metaphor is used to explain deeply about something using two unlike you know images or two unlike ideas the same way with these literary illusions they're in there because that is a fast way to get deeper meaning into a text and if you're not understanding the whole background for that literary illusion then you're really going to be missing out maybe on the theme or the message i mean it could really to me i think it does matter so when we come across those things, I stop and that would be where I would might pull a piece of the text or pull a, an image or something onto my computer, you know, or on my overhead or screen or whatever I'm using. My now smart board, because I got one. So just saying. Thanks, I've thanks never had you. one. Who 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 put in the word? Who put in the uh, word? well, because <laughs> I have this department chair that said Hey, Pam, do you want one? And his name is Jacob, in case y'all don't know. And he goes, I get, I got it in. And the principal emailed me back and said, because Jacob got it in, just in time, you get one. So she even said that. Hey, I was just fulfilling one of your dreams. It was a dream of mine. We should tell that story on the podcast sometime. Well, I, I guess you could tell it now if you want to. I don't know if you can. That's oh, well, I mean, really, it has come in handy because we are reading a novel and it's, you know, The Outsiders, for example, that's one that that my on-level kids are reading. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff in there that they really don't understand. They don't have context for it. They don't know who Paul Newman is. They don't know what a Madras shirt looks like. They don't know what a Corvair looks like. They don't know Great Expectations. I can guarantee you they don't know what Great Expectations because it's not even taught until the ninth grade. That's only if... Your school teaches the canon. Now, and if I don't you're in honors, you're not going to do that in honors. And level. you're in honors, yeah. right? Now, when I was teaching ninth grade, we that was one of our. That's what we had to teach. I taught it all the time, so I I have a good background information about great expectations. But when when uh, Pony Boy talks about how he uh, can identify, so he has a text to self connection, if you will with Pip in Great Expectations, that to me is the kids, it, they, it, they just glossed right over it. So I stopped, used that smart board of mine and pulled up these images that we would read, but I would just look over and I'd have it already on the smart board and I'd hit my button and it would pull up the images as the kids were talking about it. So it was really kind of cool. And so Great Expectations, I pulled it up. Uh, some of the students are familiar with a Christmas Carol, so I was I did a, a cross connection with that to let them know that Pip was an orphan who lived with his sister, 
just like he lives with his brothers. And Pip, people, somebody out there had great expectations for him, just like Derry has great expectations for him. And so we were able to talk about that because that is what's going to end up happening in this, this book that the students don't understand is these expectations that these boys have of Johnny, I mean, not Johnny, a pony making it because he's so smart is about to come crumbling down. And so how does he pick himself back up? And so I think it's, it's really kind of an interesting thing. And I don't think the kids would get that so much uh, if they don't understand those literary illusions like that. So, uh, but anyway, but on the story of the smart board, I had a principal years ago that told me I was never going to have a smart board. And that principal put me, yeah, sometimes I make people a little upset. Don't intend to. Everything's all in in good, but, you know, I don't know what I said or did, but I did something. But anyway, and then, uh, so he put me in the classroom, the only classroom that we had that had only blackboards. And that's all I had. And he told me, you'll never have a whiteboard. I mean, a smart board. I mean, so, how, how long ago was that? About 15 years ago. <laughs> so it took 15 years for you to finally get one, but you did it. I, I did it. I did it. Yeah. So I have a smart board and I am using the smart board. As a matter of fact, the technology person came in the other day and said, well, we have people who have these smart boards, but they're not really using them. And he opened mine up and he goes, oh, you've got all kinds of stuff on here. And I see, he goes, it's so nice to see because they, they put it in there. But I'm using it like that. I'm using it to show this background knowledge to these students as fast as possible as we're reading. So it's in time uh, showing them what they're reading about. It's really cool. Well, I'm really liking the way it's, it's working. So here's, and I'm, pro- I'm probably going to double down on this too, but here, there's a couple things that what you say is enlightening. And I think this is why it's important to have this conversation today. Because whether you're an elementary teacher, we know a lot of y'all listen to this show, middle school teacher, mm-hmm. high school teacher, the there is always this battle of, uh, you know, one of my, my life mentor, Miss Hammer, my high school teacher, <laughs> and just colleague these days, she made the response to me that she was like, you know, all English teachers feel like they have to start from square one, right? We have to start over all the time. And this bogs down lessons. It makes kids feel bored. It, it almost shows them that we have such low expectations of them from like day one, right? It's like, all right, kids, this is what plot is. And everyone shows the plot mountain. And everyone's seen the plot mountain from third grade to 12th grade. And we still act like in every grade, no one has ever seen the plot mountain. <laughs> and it's like, it's a roller coaster. And so. Oh, it's from Mr. Freytag, and it was very popular. Can you tell I have feelings about the plot mountain? I. <laughs> Well, you know, I moved into a room last year, right? Or not two years ago. Yeah. Uh, and the person left her plot mountain and it covered the entire <laughs> wall. I had to get up there and the tape ruined. I mean, you know how it stayed up there for you? It must have been up there for years yeah. because when I pulled it down, I still had evidence of the plot mountain because all the tape was still had, I still had the outline of the. I never got rid of it. Well, and just for clarification, I'm not insulting the plot mountain itself. Mm-hmm. I'm insulting the process of pretending like it's something new every single year. And we, rather than it being a reference point that we can commonly point to, right? right? right that's, that's right. the thing I'm specifically uh, talking about. But here's the thing you, what you just described though, you're not spend you didn't spend a week giving background knowledge. You didn't say, mm-hmm. you know, we had, we have to really dive into, Great expectations, so we understand this one line from the outsiders, right? And you you did it in a moment. It was real quick. You could, this could have been a pre-teaching thing. It could be in the moment. It could be after. It could be you know. There's a million different ways you could do it. But the point is, is that it was quick. You didn't belabor the point. But now you've created an access point in their brain for when they do come across something like that again, because that's going to get referenced again at some point. If not, if not in the actual book of Great Expectations, mm-hmm. um, then somewhere else, right? Someone else is going to make a connection to a Charles Dickens book. Um, but this is this reminded me is that when so I recently read like within a year ago uh, Don Quixote for my first time ever, 
And by the way, it's hilarious. It is such a great book. It is so funny. And it's amazing that it was written so long ago. Like it was like, mm-hmm. like it's still so relevant. Like there's a, but here's the thing. There was a lot of references in that book that I didn't get like references to like old night tales and cities and like inside political jokes that you would never understand unless you were a historian of that time period in that country. Um, and, but here's the thing, when you read those books today, guess what they have? They have footnotes that briefly say, oh, this references so-and-so, which was a newspaper at the time, or this references this and this, so it builds my background knowledge within a few seconds. And here's the thing. I can skip it if I want to. I look at it cause I'm a dork like that and it's interesting. And sometimes it does give me, uh, a lot of context to something. I'm like, oh, they're using a political, uh, he's using a political kind of reference here. So I know that he's kind of taking a jab at the political landscape of his time or something like that. And so that's interesting, but that's that it's literally the same thing. Now the book was doing it for me, but you did that for them because the outsiders didn't have a footnote like that. But maybe in like, you know, a hundred years, the outsider, there might be a copy that has that. Right. Or like when books reference something very specific, like there's probably books out there that reference MySpace. That in a hundred years, people there'll have to be a footnote, be like, oh, one of the like the one of like the early social media websites of the time, right? Um, and I think that is this is such a a funny point to kind of hang on, but background knowledge in we know it enriches stuff, but we know that it it also sets up kids for success or failure a lot of the times. The reason science fiction and fantasy can be difficult for students is because there's a lot there. If you don't have like just kind of cursory knowledge of fantasy um, and there and you're just diving in, a lot of that's confusing. Like especially anything that has um like create like intense language. Like people, you know, Lord of the Rings is probably in what every library across I mean, not every library, like every classroom. Like, I mean, there's probably a copy of Lord of the Rings in thousands of classrooms, right? Lord of the Rings is difficult, not because it's written difficult, but because there's so much language in there that is like, what the heck is this? Like, just foreign words. The dude was a word nerd. He was upset. He invented a whole language. Like, there's all kinds of stuff. But Narnia, for instance, even though Narnia to me is actually written at a higher level, um, it's easier to access because it's written in relatively contemporary times. The kids live, I mean, it's like Europe, but it's still contemporary. And then they go through a port. That's why portal fantasy is so popular in old, like kid literature is because you got, you start them off in the normal world. Then they go to a portal, right? Harry Potter lives mm-hmm. under a staircase and then he goes off to the magical world, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're there. They go into the wardrobe. Like they're uh, Fable Haven, a very popular fantasy book. They live in a normal world. They go off to their parents' thing and then they realize there's fantasy creatures everywhere, right? That's why that's popular because that's the, that's the training wheels kids need. They're giving them background knowledge early, right? Because that way they can learn all about uh, – they can learn along with the character, Right, they're not just, but not all fantasy does that. Aragon, for instance, fantasy book, uh, it just drops you in. It's a boy. He's in the forest. He's hunting. There's all. There's kind of some weird phrases. Eventually, a dragon hatches. There's evil people everywhere. There's magic. That's a that's a that's a steeper hill to climb. Uh, and so that background knowledge, just in terms of genre fiction. Uh, can be very um, helpful, let alone when you're reading something that has deep merit, uh, deep literary value, right? The Giver, there's a lot of references in The Giver that are referencing things in history, that are referencing political ideology. Now, you can kind of rationalize that with students if you're reading that with them, um, but it does help to give that background knowledge, right? So, I mean, and when you are reading something and you know that there's a reference somewhere or you know that there's a, a steep hill for comprehension. You're like, well, I could just give this to them, but they have no context to this, right? How do you generally plan to give background knowledge? Like, do you set out like a general, like I'm going to say this beforehand or whatever, or do you just kind of roll with it? And then as it comes up, you deal with it like you did with outsiders recently. Well, I actually do both, but Let's just take the outsiders since that's what I've been thinking about lately. 
But you know the part about Robert Frost, when we do that Nothing Gold Can Stay poem, I really want them to understand who Robert Frost is and why that is such a pivotal point part. And so I want them to um, understand a little bit more about Robert Frost because he's, he is a very important writer in the United States. And he has made, I mean, he's quoted all the time. I mean, not just in this this one, but you know his other one, where his other poem, where you know where two roads, uh, you know, you come to two roads, and then you've got to you've got to choose the one you know less uh, traveled by. And so there's some things like that, uh, fire and ice, so all kinds of stuff that have been uh, quoted of him. So I want, I think, I think for if it's something like that, like if it's somebody that they are going to come across over and over, then I may look ahead and create something and actually have a lesson that involves that, which I do with Nothing Gold Can Stay. I actually have created a video that uh, for the students that we read the po- I read the poem. Uh, I have Robert Frost read the poem so he could hear it in his own words. I just think that's fascinating when you can do that. Uh, the other we started the other day with uh, "We Real Cool" and I let them hear uh, Gwendolyn Brooks sing that. You know, uh, record that uh, in her own voice. You know, uh, say the poem, and then so so I in this thing about Robert Frost, they, they hear his voice reading it. I showed them his uh, book that it was in. And that's not all, I mean, that's not really in our standards, but what it does is it gives the students an anchor. And, and I feel, and so I think it's worthy. I think it's, it's let's stop here and rest a moment worthy so that we can really understand what he's saying. And let's look and see what was, let's, let's know a little bit about Robert Frost. What was Robert Frost saying? And why did this author, why was it important to this author? Because the author was a six, uh, what, 17 year old, 16 year old. So, you know, why did S.E. Hinton, yeah. Mm -hmm. So why did this teenager feel important? to put Robert Frost in here. Well, first of all, she was a junior. Guess what they're learning about Robert Frost. So that was right there. So then they get a better understanding of the author and why the author does those things. And then I showed the clip in my video. I pull up the clip of Pony Boy actually uh, saying Robert Frost in the uh, uh, Nothing Gold Can Stay in... um, you know, in the movie. So I just do a little small clip there. And then I end it with uh, Stevie Wonder singing the song uh, that was a part of the movie. So that's kind of, and then we go through and we talk about some things about the actual poem and we analyze the poem inside all of that. So I do this whole video, which takes about 15 minutes to run all the way through. So that's my mini lesson. And then we actually read uh, that part of it on our own. So they've actually read that poem four times and talked about it, analyzed it, understood who wrote it. And then we go through there. And then when we're finished with that section, then I have the students write, what did Pony Boy mean when he said, stay gold? You know, or not Pony Boy, but uh, Johnny said that to him, stay gold. So when they get to that part, that's when we write. And they have a huge, deep understanding about the the two characters and what really happened. But I think really understanding that poem and uh, really helps. So that would be one where I would start ahead of time and I would create something uh, that would do it. But this thing about great expectations, I didn't feel a need to go deeply into it. So that was more of a, let's stop, let me give an explanation. So it just depends really on how uh integral if you will this literary allusion is to the theme or the character development or the setting development of the story so to me that's that's where i make my determination and that's my teacher choice that i do um did um 
one of my most favorite times that I did something like that. And it was a connection to Martin Luther King. And, um, and it was the uh, Martin Luther King, his quotes about injustice. And then I took a, a poem about Sophie shows the white rose. And then I took a picture book that dealt with the white rose society uh, called Rose Blanche. And then I did, and I tied it all to, to kill a mockingbird. And I did all of those and the students wrote about it. It was probably one of the most moving uh, times and meaningful times. They really understood uh, that part of the text because it was what I did then was it was uh, that part into kill a mockingbird where scout realized that her teacher was speaking out of two sides of her mouth. The teacher was talking about how it's not okay to persecute people, but yet she saw her, I'm assuming it was a her on the steps of the courthouse just the summer before uh, joining in with the mob, so to speak, and yelling about the thing. And so Scout is trying to figure this out. And so I take them to injustices around the world, um, namely the uh, German situation with the Holocaust and Sophie shows and the White Rose Society was a group of kids that actually stood up against Hitler. They lost their life for it, but they stood up against Hitler uh, in the same way that Atticus is standing up against society. So, and anybody else standing up against anybody who's like, you know, for, um, for Boo Radley and all that kind of stuff. So that was just a really fascinating time. And uh, my students wrote very deeply off of that. So to me, that's how I, that was a pre-planned, uh, let's, let's stop and actually really teach a lesson using cross-text references. Well, and this is what um, I recently did uh, this last week. Um, I did it twice, actually, for two weeks in a row. I did one. Yes. Uh, on I did one with a, a kind of like a cross text analysis of Ruby Bridges and the history behind that, and Malala, and talking about just people standing up and really questioning like why would people fight so hard for education, right? Why is this so important? Why, but. We like one of the small ways I just wanted kids to think about background knowledge than that of because uh, as much as they might connect to both of those stories, they're still, you know, Malala is in a, in a just in a different situation in terms of just where like her country and the political climate and everything else and the religion involved. And then Ruby Bridges is even though it's not that long ago, it's still a time that isn't it's it's hard to conceive. Right. Because for kids, I mean, that's like. <laughs> it's like so long ago, right? We, a lot of them don't realize that that really was not even, I mean, th this is like their grandparents age or even their parents age if their parents are old enough. Right. So, uh, we, to, to kind of make that concrete, I, we did a, just a, a conversation about what is, what do we take for granted? What, what are things in your life that you take for granted? Right. And we started talking about this and I was like, well, why, why are they fighting so hard for this? And we did that and we kind of talked, but in a, in a better way to connect to this is I did a whole week on Emily Dickinson poetry. Uh, one, I love Emily Dickinson. She's one of my favorite poets of all time, but I just thought it'd be fun. I, I, I've done this time to time. I don't do it every year. It's just sometimes like, you know what? We're going to do a week of Emily Dickinson. I've done it in different ways. I've done uh, an author study where we read her poetry and tried to analyze her from her poems and then read about her. Uh, which has been fun. But this one, I did the opposite. We read an article about her and, you know, all the typical stuff that she was a recluse and all this. She wrote letters to people. She felt abandoned because people didn't write her as much as she wrote. I don't think anyone wrote as much as she wrote. She wrote like, <laughs> just so much. Um, her struggles with her faith. She was raised in a Calvinistic family. Um, and she was a little bit, I think it's safe to say that she kind of felt, uh, not ostracized, but she didn't connect to that faith as much. She was a, she was more of a spiritual person. She was definitely Christian, I think. I think anyone who's a scholar of her could say that, but she was yeah. definitely more spiritual in terms of, for at least in light of Calvinism, which is a very uh, intense faith by some measures. So um, they 
And but that's a lot of her struggle, right? Is just figuring this out. She lived during the the Civil War. She lived when a lot of people were dying. A lot of her family members died. Her friends died, and she just kind of she's just an interesting character because she explored all of this. So we we got that background knowledge, and then I tasked my students. I didn't put them on their own, but I said, "Let's read. We're going to read three poems. We're going to read one a day, right? So we read the article Monday, read a poem on Tuesday, read a poem on Wednesday, read a poem on Thursday, and." By Thursday, I had them analyze it on their own. But when we started, we took that background knowledge and we really just examined it. The first uh, one that we looked at was um, – it was uh, before I got my eye put out, right? Poem 336. And Hmm. this one, uh, when we looked at it, we were talking about how – like this was one where she we had some background knowledge, but then I I like you did in the middle of it. She says, uh, "For mine, I tell you that my heart would split for size of me. The meadows mine, the mountains mine, all forests, stintless stars, as much as noon as I could take between my finite eyes." Right? I mean, one it just flows so freaking good. I love her stuff, but it's uh, she's this is radical. This is. The 1800s, and you have this uh, this woman, right, and this religious person saying the meadows mine, right, the mountains mine, and I was like, so I briefly talked to him about this. I'm like, this doesn't sound radical to y'all because every song is an ego boost, right? Every modern song is appealing to the human ego, but back in the day, that wasn't the case. This was, I mean, this was rebellious in a way you have this young woman saying that she owns these things just because she looks at them. Right. And I was like, that's right. That's a radical idea. And so that, that connected to the week before we were talking about women standing up for their rights and standing up for the right to be educated and everything else. So we had that background knowledge from there. And I was like, this has always kind of been happening. We had great conversations around that. Um, but towards the end, it talks about she she kind of questions this though. So the poem is very egocentric, kind of. But at the end, it says, "So safer guess with just my soul upon the window pane, where other creatures put their eyes, and cautious of the sun." And I was like, "What does that mean?" I was like, "Why is she in cautious of the sun? What does the sun do?" So we had that conversation. You know, talking about figurative language, but you know, it's the sun. It's bright. If you look at it, it hurts your eyes. It does this, but it's also life giving. It illuminates. It does all of this. And I was like, "This." I was like, "The sun is." I mean, think like we had this conversation, um, but as we were talking about this, I said, "What if I told you that this idea of the sun being something integral to?" The both both something that's life-giving and scary. What if I told you that people have been talking about this? Like, what do you mean? So I brought up just a small little excerpt. It was a summary that I found of uh, Icarus, right? The myth of Icarus flying cl- too close to the sun and all of this. The wings of wax. Yeah, right? He, he had the wings and they made them for him to escape his prison cell. But he flew too close to the sun and burned up his wings and died anyway. And so we were, we had this question. I was like, whether Emily Dickinson is referencing Icarus directly or not, I think she is. I think at least in some parts she is, or at least using the same type of tropes connected to that. Um, I said, regardless of this, what, I was like, Emily, this is, Emily is facing, this poem is Icarus's story. It is someone in their room, in trapped wherever they are, whether it's mentally, physically, Icarus was in prison. She was in her room. She it really, she wasn't really in her room. She was in her mind, right? She was trapped in her mind. She's looking out the window pane. Could be an actual window. Could be her eyes. Could be her soul. Whatever you want to put. But she's looking out and she's like, well, these are mine. This is all mine. She's at one part. She's like, I own all of this. But on the other part, she's saying, but maybe I'm safer here. Maybe I, I should be cautious of the sun because what does the sun do? It burns. It kills. It could burn your wings off, right? And I think that's such a fascinating idea. And we had this conversation and the what the, all of that back, – the background knowledge of her and then me briefly mentioning the myth – even if students weren't fully on board with these interrelated things, what it gave us was this launching point to discuss literature, right? We're discussing literally one of the greatest poets and we're seventh graders, right? I did this with on level and my honors classes. And I got to tell you, the conversations were great. They were analyzing it. They were doing this. Some of them were like, wow, like, I can't believe like this is really here. Like this is actually kind of smart. And I'm like, yes. And here's the thing. 
What I'm doing in middle school and what elementary teachers are doing in elementary, depending on what they're doing, is we set these foundations, right? Us, you spending time to reference uh, great expectations of the outsiders is setting a precedence for those high school teachers. You're laying a foundation, background knowledge that they that's going to benefit them later, right? I'm giving them background knowledge based on these poems and Emily Dickinson and Icarus and all of these other things, right? Icarus definitely comes into play when they start reading myths and uh, even, even the Odyssey and the Iliad. I mean, all of that stuff gets referenced in those things. So my point is, is that by taking the time to do this stuff and to kind of merge this freedom of choice that we talk about, right, that we have kids reading their books, we use great literature in our mini lessons. We use popular stuff. We use classic stuff. We use canon. We use non-canon. We use all of it. And what we try to do is put it in this pot and give kids as many access points to background knowledge, to uh, the stuff that's going to help them uh, in their academics, but also in their life and just have an enriched reading life and all of this other things. It is, I think it's so essential and this is why like when people battle about this, like, oh, what's the important? It's like, I think what's all important, I think what we should be talking about is what is the most effective way to do it in this specific lesson? Because I think each lesson calls for something different, right? Each, mm-hmm. uh, whatever, whatever your goal is for that classroom depends on, uh, or whatever, whatever you're trying to do alters how you're going to approach these things. And my, like for you, you referenced it kind of in passing. Mine was a little bit pre-taught. Next week, we're going to do some stuff on uh, the Holocaust, specifically focused on um, uh, the author of Night uh, and his perspective, because he has some musings about just writing about tragedy and what this means. And I think that's really fascinating to to read about from a a student's perspective, because a lot of them have lived through trauma and they don't know how to put certain things into words. So I'm going to give some background knowledge on the Holocaust, which I'm sure they've they've heard and stuff, but they don't fully understand in seventh grade. You know what I mean? I mean, who does mm-hmm. understand it? But there's there's certain implications that they need to know to understand what he's talking about. But I'm not going to belabor the point. Um, I'm not. It's not a a history class, but I am setting the foundations for when they do come across this. They're like, oh yeah, we read about this in seventh grade. And now that teacher gets to go deeper, right? It's always like that foundation. It's always, I mean, how nice is it when you get someone in your class or like a group of students, you're like, oh, y'all already know this. Sweet. We can go deeper today. You know what I mean? Like, but that's what we do. I mean, we're always, I, part of us are teaching for what the kids have now, but part of us, like, I think one of the, the ultimate truth in teaching, which is probably the most frustrating truth as well, is we don't always see the fruit of our labors in teaching. Other teachers oh. see them. You know what I mean? Yeah, we we don't unless sometimes they come back and talk to you. But yeah. very rarely do you get that. You can go a whole lifetime and not know how a particular student turned out. Yeah. So that's true. I think it's I think it's vastly important. I think it's a great conversation. We'll probably talk about this more, but I just, you know, it's been on our minds. It's something that we do, but you know, as, as people dive into this, I think it's, I think it's important to read something and go, what background knowledge do students need? You know, we, we gave a one year, our, our state test did a something and it had to do with like very specific stuff about a climate. It was like snow. I was like, a lot of our students don't even know what snow is. Like we've like Texas right. kids, like we've, we've had some snow in the, like the last few years because of just changes in weather and whatnot. But like, I mean, I, I have probably in my lifetime living in Texas, I have probably experienced snow less than 20 times. Well, I've experienced it more than you, but I lived up in the Panhandle where just the other day we had 21 tornadoes, but the Panhandle had a blizzard. <laughs> Yeah. So, so it's definitely a huge state. So it just depends on where in Texas. Well, and that's true. And we and like and <laughs> people come from all over. You know, we're a very diverse school. Like we've said before, we I mean there's people from like over 40 countries at our school. So it is it's something like that. But that that means background knowledge is even more important, right? When it, it comes it I mean, when it comes to I mean, when people bring uh like I, I see it as as part of the the beauty of what we do in America. We educate everyone. We've had this talk mm-hmm. before. Public education yeah. does something unique. Um, we educate every person. And part of that is if you want a fulfilling, 
meaningful and successful life in a country like this, there are touchstones that you need to know, you know, especially if you're pursuing something in academia um, or something like that. But it also just enriches your joy. Like, I, I mean, as random as it sounds, like even watching like funny sitcoms like The Office or something like that, you know, it's always nice that like, re- like those are they're making references. Some of those references go over people's head, but they're everywhere. And it, oh, it enriches yeah. your experience when you know where that comes from. Yeah, they're in the movies, they're in the TV shows, they're probably in their they're games. They're in your commercials? They're in your commercials for sure, yes. So I just think the more, like you say, you began this whole thing with access. And access to books is very important, it really is. But also access to that background knowledge, access to as much knowledge as they can get their hands on in a short amount of time as possible, I think is one of the jobs of a reading teacher. I really do. I I use a lot of picture books to help with that as well. As a matter mm -hmm. of fact, you've been sending some students my way. They've been been asking for them. I put my, uh, yeah, they've been cleaning my library out. What's up? I don't know. Yeah, it just happened. Like I had a few, it was so random because they were like, I have a few, like I, I don't have as many pictures as you like not even close i think i have like 10 and you have like 60 at yeah, least. yeah i have three shelves worth. Yeah. yeah so it's uh they had just c- come across them and like hey do, do you have any more of these and i'm like i don't but i know who does and so i just started <laughs> sending them to you so that was yeah they just come on in and i'm like one of them says i just need books about animals and i'm like all right well let's go look and so we just took put them right up my bookshelf and I don't, I'm hoping they're coming back. I don't even know, but if they are not, they're not, but, uh, but I think they're, they're coming to your room and I think they're, I mean, they're grabbing like armfuls of books off my bookshelf talking about access. We we even cross, uh, cross shelves. We cross classroom libraries all the time, all the time. Our partner, I'll get kids at Mm -hmm. my door and like, do you have this book? Or like a teammate will come in and be like, Hey, my student needs this book. Do you have it? Like we, we do it all. That's what we do. We, we create this access uh-huh. Well, we, the other day, well, when I say the other day, it's been a month or two, but I have a student that she's read quite a few books on my shelf, but sometimes they just feel like their sixth grade teacher's shelves must have been better than mine. So anyway, so she went to her sixth grade teacher uh, and uh, I think you've mentioned her before on the podcast, Miss Bannister. Yep. So anyway. Teaching and, teacher, uh, season one alumni. <laughs> Uh, yeah, there you go. I knew you'd I knew you'd mentioned her, so it'd probably be okay. But anyway, she uh she comes to my room, she knocks on my room. She's got like, I mean, probably about seven books stacked in her hands. And she says, One of your students have requested my new books. And so here they are. <laughs> so she brought she brought to my classroom like seven books so that my students who requested them from last year, I didn't have those books. That's what they said. These books are not on my shelf. So she brought me all these books and I set them up there on my table and they just worked through them for like a whole month. And then finally she came and they came and took them back. But so, yeah, we even go cross, uh, uh, cross grade levels as well. Well, and as to to cut a point that I want to say, and then we'll close it out, which was, uh-huh. you know, we, I think we rely, sometimes we over rely on the internet's power, right? We, we expect because all of human knowledge is now documented on the internet. That means kids have access to it. And that's not true. There's a language to accessing information, right? There's a language to accessing, yes. uh, deeper forms of knowledge than just something that you can quickly Google, right? Um, that is, that's the, the greatest part of the internet is that it's all out there. The worst part of the internet is that you have to be literate and digital, information to access it, much like you have to be literate in books to access them in libraries. Just because books exist does not mean kids have access to them fully. There's other steps we have to take to literally go back to how we started this podcast. So I think if anyone gets anything from this, it's it's how do we increase access to knowledge? How do we increase access to books? How do we increase access to everything that lowers the barrier to entry to an enriched life of education and knowledge and passion. But that's Craft and Draft, ladies and gentlemen. 
Thank you for listening so much to this hour-long conversation. You know, sometimes I sit down and I'm like, ah, oh, you know, this one will probably be like a 40-minute episode. And those are the ones that go over an hour, and sometimes I'm like, well, you know, this one will probably be like an hour. Sometimes those are like the 40-minute ones. You just never know. But if you want more of this, two real teachers in real public schools talking about real problems and real lessons and real situations, hit subscribe so you don't miss anything. Support us over there on Patreon like several several of our listeners do. You get access to bonus content that no one else ever sees and training videos. You can follow us on Facebook if you like. Find us at craftanddraftworkshop.com. You can submit a question. People that support us on Patreon get their questions answered first, but we love answering questions regardless if you support us or not. We know money is tight. Gas prices are like $3,000 per ounce of gas. You never know what's going on. So we perfectly understand if you can't support us. But if you do, we absolutely love it. And if you can't support us monetarily, then hit subscribe so you don't miss anything. It really does help leave a review. And come back next week for another fantastic episode about reading and writing workshop. But all that to say, know that we are here for you. <laughs>